Well, we're back in our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 6, our sermon text this morning is a familiar one. Mark 6, verses 30 to 44. It's the feeding of the 5,000, a very familiar account. And I'll ask that if you're able to do so, that you stand for the reading of God's word today. Give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Mark writes, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going. And recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside. And villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Well, then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up the twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, this, this morning, this is one of those one of those accounts, one of those texts that's uh, might it might be other than the resurrection, it might be the most well known miracle of Christ that we have in our New Testaments. You know, if you if you are familiar with the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you've read them any number of times throughout your, your life, uh, you may, you may have, have caught on to the fact that different, the different Gospels tell the same story from a different angle. But sometimes they include, you know, Ma- Matthew, for instance, might include one miracle that the other ones don't, and vice versa. Well, this, this is one of the few, the very few miracles of Christ that are recorded for us in all four Gospels. That, that, should, that should get our attention, that... That should make us sit up and take notice. There must be something very significant about this one miracle for all four gospel writers to be moved by the Holy Spirit to include it in their gospel accounts. Lord willing, we're going to see at least part, a small part maybe, of, of what that significance is. But it, we should definitely see that that, that should mean something. There's, there's got to be a reason they all included it other than the fact that it happened. You know... Is it the most impressive miracle? All miracles are impressive. If we were there, we would have been highly impressed. But what about Lazarus? What about raising the dead? Which, which is more, for lack of better words, which is more impressive? Raising a man from the dead who was dead for four days, uh, and they were afraid to open the tomb because they thought it would stink he was so dead. Or, or feeding 
a very large group of, of people. They're both miraculous, but for some reason, and I hope we'll see part of that reason, uh, this one is so important that it's in all four Gospels. Well, in some ways, our passage this morning and the passage we looked at a number of weeks ago that precedes it, verses 14 to 29, kind of present us with, um, if I can steal a line from Charles Dickens, a tale of two kings. You have King Herod in the previous passage and King Jesus in, in our passage. Uh, and in King Herod, King Herod, we see that was the, the account of the death of John the Baptist, the murder not just the death of John the Baptist, but the murder of John the Baptist. And if you were here, we saw in that passage, you saw the wickedness of King Herod on full display in all of his anti-glory in some ways. You know, kind of culminating in that state-sanctioned, but still an ungodly and wicked murder of John, John the Baptist. Herod, for all of his pomp, for all of his, his power, was really quite a pathetic picture of a king, wasn't he? He was trying, you know, he was kind of trying to show off, wasn't he? But what, what does the text reveal him to be in those, those verses? This man that, that wanted to be a king, uh, that wanted to be thought of as somebody who was powerful, was really somebody who was enslaved to his lusts. He was not much of a king if you really look at, at what the text says. He was enslaved to his own lusts, his lust for power. He was enslaved to his lust for prestige. Remember the people that he had at his banquet? It was all the mighty military men, all the, the other people that were rulers, all the leading men of the city, the, 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 the main citizens of his, of his place, uh, his lust of the flesh. And he's, he basically stole his brother's wife. And to make it worse, who else did he lust at over in that passage? His stolen wife's daughter. This was not much of a, of a king. Well, in our text this morning, we see a much different king, a much greater king, the king of all kings. Jesus there, the king, he also kind of has a banquet of sorts too, doesn't he? He feeds the hungry. You know, King Herod gave a banquet, and King Herod wanted to give the impression, all the heirs of, of being a generous host, but was he really being a generous host? No, he, he held that banquet, it was on his birthday, for his own benefit even if he tried to give the impression of something else. Herod fed the movers and the shakers. He fed those who could benefit him. He fed them in a palace. What did Jesus do here? Jesus fed thousands of lost, wandering, needy souls and fed them in the wilderness, not in a palace. Our text this morning shows us, among other things, it shows us Jesus is a compassionate king who cares for those who can't do anything for him. He's much more compassionate and much more powerful than any earthly king. You'd be tempted to see the pictures, a picture of Herod as a powerful king, and Jesus is not so much. But our text is going to show us something quite different. Jesus is the king of kings. He's the most powerful king that ever walked this earth and ever will walk this earth. And we're going to see at least three things from our text. As Dr. Jones said last week, you should expect a three-point sermon in the Reformed Church. Well, let's no, no, uh, nothing different today. The first thing we're going to see in our text is the compassion of Christ. Our first point is the compassion of Christ. The second point is the, the name of the sermon and of the text as well. The feeding of the 5,000. The feeding of the 5,000. And third, the prophet like Moses. 
So the compassion of Christ, the feeding of the 5,000, and the prophet like Moses. The first thing that I hope stands out in the text when you read it is the compassion of Jesus. Verse 34, Mark says that when Jesus saw the crowd, what does it say? Mark says he had what? Compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. You know, and it's easy to think that that's where the compassion in the text starts. But it's really not right, is it? It's not just the crowd that Jesus had compassion on. It's not the first place in our text where his compassion is on display for us to see. Mark first points out to us that Jesus had compassion on his disciples. It's easy to look past that. Look at verse 30 to 32 there. Mark says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and do what? Rest. Rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, where did they just come back from? You have to go back a little ways in chapter 6. They had just gone on, in a sense, their first solo flight, so to speak. You know, they were following Jesus, but who was doing most of the work all the time? Jesus was. Who was doing all the teaching most of the time? Jesus was. Well, earlier in chapter 6, what does Jesus do? He sends them out. Like he's been, you know, it's, it's easy to forget that he was training them. They weren't just accompanying him to be his entourage. You know, Jesus just didn't need a group of, of, of yes men following him. He was training them to teach what he taught. He was training them in a lot of ways to do what he had done. And that's what he sent them to do. And so what do they do? They come back. They're kind of giving him a report. They're saying, Jesus, here's what we did. Here's what we taught. And it's, it's significant that the, what, what is his response? His response is to tell them to rest. And you know, you think about it, their journey was not a small journey. The work that they had done, it wasn't like they went two blocks down the street, so to speak, did a couple things and came back. We don't know how long this, this, this work must have taken, but they must have been tired. And what was Jesus' first reaction? He wants them, he says, to come away and rest a while, verse 31. Mark even says that many, many were coming and going, and they had no leisure, they had no good time, even to eat. Now, I don't know about you, but you know, it, when's the last time you went on a trip? Even in your car, cars are pretty comfortable, but you know, when you went on a long trip, you get home, you, you don't want to get right to work. You come home, the house is a little messy, your first thought probably isn't, I'm going to get at that right now. Well, they don't even have time to eat because of the crowds that were coming and going. They were taking so much of their time, the disciples didn't have a chance to catch their breath, much less a chance to even eat a meal. And so what does Jesus say? He says he wants them to come away and stop. Come away to a... The word desolate really means it's a place where they'd be alone. It doesn't mean it was a bad place. It means it was a place away from everything. Get them, come away from it all and spend time with him. He doesn't send them away. He says, come away. He wants them to spend time with him. Jesus knew they needed that. After all that work, after their journey, after their teachings and doings, they needed to spend time with Jesus. And we need the same thing too, don't we? When you get tired, 
in the work, not tired of the work, hopefully. We need time with Christ. You know, if you think about this, I won't belabor this point, but this is really the reason for the fourth commandment, isn't it? What is the fourth commandment? I won't make you say it. It's the Sabbath commandment, a day of holy rest and worship. And, you know, in, in our weakness and misunderstandings at time, I think we get it very much backwards. You know, we, we think of, of the fourth commandment sometimes. Maybe, maybe the way we've heard it taught can sound harsh, right? It's, it sounds very strict, but we have it backwards. We, we think the fourth commandment is God being strict. The fourth commandment is God giving us rest. Is God saying, slow down and spend time with me. This is what you need. You need holy rest, not inactivity, holy rest and worship time, time with him. So here we see in our passage Christ's compassion for his people, even for his ministers, the twelve, right? Even for his ministers. It brings to mind the words of our call to worship this morning, Psalm 103, verses 13 to 14. He says, as a father, David says, as a father shows compassion to his children so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame he remembers that we're dust I hope that's an encouragement to you it's easy for us to get overwhelmed and exhausted it's easy for us to get overwhelmed and exhausted in the work of ministry of of, of all kinds of ministry that includes the work of a pastor such as myself and others That includes the work of ruling elders and deacons, which Lord willing that we're going to have in the near future. That includes the work of those serving behind the scenes in all kinds of ways that most people don't even notice. That includes the work of those who seek to evangelize and disciple others. That includes those who are involved in all kinds of mercy ministries, serving those who have needs, caring for the poor and people that can't care for themselves. You know, it. I don't know if you're like me at all, but it it seems very often there's no end to the work that has to get done. You finish one thing and there's three more things waiting behind it. There's no end to the work that has to get done and there there never seems to be enough time in a day. I don't know if you you do what I do. I I, I keep a little to-do list. Usually one of the first things I do in my week is I'll make my list of the things that I know I have to do, even though other things will creep in. And you know, it's funny that most of the time I don't even finish my list and the next week, there's a whole new list, isn't there? You ever feel like that? Well, what is Je- Jesus has compassion on us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I'm sure you've probably felt that way. Well, if you've ever felt like that, if you've ever felt like there's, there's not enough time in a day, and you can't possibly get to the end of the work that has to get done, take heart. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, while he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings, he's no harsh taskmaster. He's no slave driver. He's not like the people in Egypt that that made the job harder and took away the straw and didn't, didn't decrease the workload. We picture God like that sometimes, but that's not the way our Heavenly Father is. What does it say in Psalm 103? He shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame. He knows our weaknesses. He remembers that we're dust. And our text tells us that he's the good shepherd who makes us lie down in green pastures and leads us beside still waters. You know, Mark even points out they sat, sat on the green grass. It's almost like I wonder, you almost wonder if Mark had Psalm 23 in the back of his mind when he was reading this 
writing this rather passage. It brings to mind the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, familiar text where he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you. Yoke sounds hard, right? It's what you put on an ox to, to plow a field. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It sounds backwards, doesn't it? We expect him to say, take the yoke off and put your feet up. You know, put your feet up and stay a while. He says, no, no, take, take that yoke off. Take my yoke upon you. But, and the last thing you expect to find is rest, but what do you find? When you serve Christ, you have rest. You have the first rest you've ever had in your life. The king of kings tells you he is gentle and lowly in heart. He cares for his people. Christ's yoke is the only yoke that provides rest for our souls. All other yokes are a yoke of slavery. Christ's servants, however, find true rest from their labors and in their labors. His yoke is easy. His burden is light. Have you found rest for your souls in Christ? Are you resting in Christ? Do you know that his yoke is easy and his burden is light? Well, Mark also points out explicitly the compassion of Christ, not just for the, for the twelve, but for the crowds. You know, in some sense you could say, well, the twelve, of course, they're the twelve. They're important. They're going to be the apostles. They spend day and night with Jesus. I don't identify with them. I'm a pastor. I certainly don't identify with the apostles. But what is, what is Mark quick to tell us? That Jesus had compassion on the crowds as well. Look at verses 32 to 34. It says, and they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. So far, so good. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. Must have been quite the runners. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. You, know, you, could, you could forgive the disciples if they felt like they couldn't catch a break. Jesus is like, let's take a break. Let's get in the boat and go somewhere away from all these people. And what happens? They don't even get their foot out of the boat on the other side, and there's a crowd. These people should have been on like an Olympic track team or something. They must have been so fast. And how big is the crowd? It's literally thousands and thousands of people. It's, it's hard to comprehend that. We can't get our minds wrapped around that kind of a, of a scene. But when Jesus, you know, how would you feel if, if it was you? I'd be exasperated. I would be shoulders slumped over, hands in the air, muttering under my breath. Oh, you know, I thought you said come away and rest. What is this? We're, let's go somewhere. Let's get right back in the boat and go find a different place. We, can, we need to find a different, a different desolate place than this. This place is not desolate enough. But what did Jesus see? He saw the crowd, and what did he see? Something to exasperate him? An uh, 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 interruption in his day? An interruption from his rest? No, he saw sheep without a shepherd. And what was his response? He had compassion on them. They weren't just another burden for him to bear, although they were a burden, I'm sure, in some ways. 
you know, I, I think in a lot, of, a lot of ways, some of us have more difficulty believing in that than we do the miracle. You know, if we're, if we're Bible-believing Christians, I trust everyone here, uh, that, that that describes you. When you read about a miracle in the Bible, you don't say, ah, there's no way that happened. When you read about God creating everything with a word, you don't go, well, I don't know if God could do that. When you read about the flood, I hope you don't go, well, I don't know if there was really a worldwide flood or if God really made every, all the people on the earth from Adam and Eve or all these things. Or I don't know if Jesus really raised Lazarus from the dead. I, hope, I trust that's not you. I trust that when you read about any miracle in the Bible, you say, he's God. It's no sweat for God to do any kind of a miracle, right? Even feeding 5,000 people from one little boy's lunch. But I think sometimes, uh, I won't speak for anybody here, but I think sometimes we have trouble believing this kind of stuff more than that kind of stuff. We, we say to ourselves, is Jesus really compassionate of me? Does he really know my frame and remember that I'm dust? When he sees me stumbling and fumbling and, and stumbling along, in my weakness and even in our sins. But I think this text should be a good reminder to us uh, that once again in the Gospels we see over and over again, Jesus never turns away anyone who comes to him. Have you noticed that? Read your Gospels. And if you find one, tell me. I haven't found one yet. Somebody comes to Jesus, he ministers to them. Now you see plenty of people turn away from him, but you never see him Not right now. That's what we do. Jesus doesn't do not right now. Jesus never turns anyone away. He refuses no one. The scriptures, I believe, go to great lengths to impress upon you and me the great compassion of our Savior for sinners. Well, that brings us to the second thing in our text and probably the more memorable of of the text, and that's the miracle itself, the actual feeding of the 5,000 But before we get to that, notice one thing. Jesus saw the crowd. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion upon them. What's the first thing he did to show his compassion upon them? Was it it feeding them? No. Verse 34, he began to teach them many things. The first thing Jesus did to show his compassion upon these lost, wandering souls was he taught them. He fed them, and that's what we all remember. But he taught them. Jesus cared for their physical needs, and he saw to it that they had something to eat, but he taught them first. That's what lost souls need far more than food. We need the Word of God. We, you and I, need the Word of God more than we need our next meal. Brings to mind Deuteronomy 8.3, which is also in the context of the manna in the wilderness, God feeding his people bread from heaven. It says this, Deuteronomy 8.3. Man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Again, that's in the context of giving them the manna for 40 years. He doesn't not give them the manna and says, no, just listen to me. But the more important thing is the word of God. The word of God, even more than our, our daily bread, is life-giving. The word of God is every bit as necessary, maybe more so, for our lives as daily bread. Do you believe that? Do you believe you need the word of God more than you need physical bread? Do you know that you, you live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord? 
So what God has joined together, let no man separate, as often it's said at weddings. True mercy ministry, true gospel ministry is not an either-or proposition. Feeding the hungry is no substitute for the gospel. We don't, we don't feed the poor and say, well, that's the gospel. That's what I did. And likewise, preaching the gospel does not excuse us from caring for the physical needs of our neighbors. It's both and, not either or. One, neither one is a substitute for the other, even if one of them takes priority over the, the other. Jesus was teaching. How long was Jesus teaching that crowd? I'm tired after a, I almost said one hour sermon. It won't be one hour. Uh, you know, we get tired just doing this. He was doing this for hours. It must have been some teaching. Verses 35 to 36, Mark gives us a hint. He says, when it grew late. What's Jesus doing the whole time, presumably? Teaching the crowd. When it grew late, verse 35, his disciples came to him and said, they keep saying the same phrase over and over again, this is a desolate place. Hey, Jesus, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, but we're not, we're not in town. You know, this is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. It was getting late. It was probably getting dark. And so the disciples suggested what probably seemed to be the only reasonable solution. Right? Yes, it's, you know, send them away. Time to go home. Everybody, everybody go home, come back tomorrow. And I think it's easy for you and me to sit here and judge them kind of harshly and think, well, how could they possibly think that? Because we know what Jesus is going to do. They didn't know what Jesus was going to do. They weren't being jerks. They weren't being uncaring. They thought that was the most logical course of action. They might have been saying, how much longer is he going to go? <laughs> this is a long sermon, whatever this, whatever this is. And think about this, too. These people weren't homeless. They weren't, I think sometimes we get the wrong idea. They weren't homeless. Uh, they weren't necessarily poor or without means. Uh, they probably could have done, most of them, maybe all of them, exactly what the disciples said. They weren't broke. The disciples weren't looking at a bunch of homeless people that had no money and no way to get food and saying, oh, let them go buy food. That's not a good way to, to run a shelter, right? These, these people probably had all the means they could have needed to go buy food. And so the disciples said, hey, they can take care of themselves. Let them go, let them go eat. It's getting, it's getting late. Let them buy themselves something to eat. But why did Jesus not go for that? He doesn't say, you know, argument from silence time, you know. He doesn't say, oh, no, no, you don't understand. They don't have any money. They probably had money. But if they went to go buy themselves something to eat, what would they have to stop doing? They'd have to stop listening to Jesus teaching them many things. And Jesus knew and believed, like as we should, that it's by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord that those people live. Those people who were sheep without a shepherd, well, he was acting as their shepherd. He was going to provide his sheep something to eat. And so what did Jesus say? Instead, he had a different plan. Probably raised a couple eyebrows in, in the group. You give them something to eat. You know, it's one thing to say, no, no, we're not going to do that. You know, I, I fasted for 40 days. They can last one day. He says, no, no, you give them something to eat. Now, 
the disciples weren't dummies. They didn't have food for probably even themselves, much less thousands of people. Did the disciples have enough money on them to buy meals, you know, to-go bags, for five-plus thousand people? No. No. Did Jesus know that when he told them to give them something to eat? Yes, he did. Jesus isn't, oh, you guys probably have some money. You know, Judas, you like having money. You go, buy him some, go buy him some food. No, sorry. No, no. What's he doing? He's, he's once again, this is what you might call a teachable moment. He's going to teach them, even as he's teaching the crowd. He wants to remind them about who they're dealing with. He's going to remind them about who he really is, that he really is the Son of God. And he tells them, you know... What does he tell them to do also? Go, not just go feed them. He says, basically, go find out how much you do have. Go, go, go count up the food. You know, take a census. Go, go walk around and see who has what. How long that would have taken, we don't know. Thousands of people. You can imagine the, the 12 walking around. Did anybody pack a lunch? Anybody have anything? Why do you ask? No reason. You know, no reason. No, nothing, to, nothing to worry about here. Nothing to see here, folks. Um, that might have sounded like a pretty strange instruction. Did they already know there wasn't enough food? Yes. yes. And Jesus says, well, go, go tally it up anyway. Go count and see who has what. Count up all the bread that you can find. Well, why does he do that? Well, I think one thing it does, at least for our benefit, is it disproves the kind of nonsensical uh, suggestion of, of many unbelieving liberal scholars. I know it's redundant. Who, and what do they always try to do with Christ's miracles? They try to explain them away by natural explanations, by natural means. Uh, and what, what do they often do with this miracle? Well, you might know, you might not know. I'll, I'll give you a summary, a, a Cliff Notes version of liberal uh, understanding of this passage. What they would say is that what really happened was that when the disciples found those five loaves and two fishes, or two fish, as John 6, 9 tells us, uh, that where did they get it? They got it from a little boy. You know, thousands of people, one boy was smart enough to pack a lunch, apparently. Um, and so what really happened, according to the unbelieving liberal scholars, is that when, when the little boy said, here's my, my lunch, you can do what you want with it, the whole crowd felt guilty. And the whole crowd had secretly hidden their own food and didn't want to share. And so when they saw the little boy, this is scholarship, folks, uh, when, they, when they saw the little boy give up his happy meal, uh, the whole crowd suddenly felt bad, and there was what they would call a miracle of sharing. Well, a miracle of sharing is not a miracle, is it? That's not a miracle at all. Well, maybe in some places it might be a miracle, but it wouldn't be a miracle here. It's, you know, I couldn't help but think of, uh, of, of you know, the, the end of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas. You know, the Grinch's heart grew ten times as big, and he gave back what he stole. Uh, you know, their hearts grew ten times as big as they were before, and they finally gave, everybody broke out the food that they were hiding in their, in, their, in their robes and things, and there was so much food left over. These people must have had humps on their backs from all the food that they, they brought. But, you know, the scriptures rule that out by telling us things like this. Go check and see what we have. Number it. Tell us how much food that we have. And then Jesus does something kind of remarkable. He tells the crowd to sit down on the green grass in groups of hundreds and fifties. 
And then what does he do? You, you can probably forget the disciples for kind of scratching their head maybe and going, oh no, what's he going to do? Here's, here's five loaves, probably pretty small loaves, uh, and two fish, and he starts dividing people up. And okay, we're all going to sit in groups, and maybe they thought he was going to give out like what we do for communion, a little tiny sliver of bread or, or of fish. Verse 41 says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. I don't know about you. If I'm one of the, one of the twelve, I'm like, no, no, why don't, you, why don't you pass that out? I don't want to be the bearer of bad news and little, little tiny slivers of bread. He gives it to them. You guys go pass this out. And they did exactly that commentators have pointed out that that description here that Mark gives of Jesus' actions with the bread, it's, it's almost word for word the same description or the same words uh, that we find in Matthew's account of Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, 26, see if this sounds familiar. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And said, take, eat, this is my body. Taking bread, blessing it, breaking it, giving it to the disciples to pass along. It's a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. It's a foreshadowing of the Lord's Supper. And so it's also a foreshadowing, if you know what the Lord's Supper is about, it's a foreshadowing of of Jesus as the bread of life whose body was broken for us, for our sins and for our salvation. It's a picture of what's to come. It's a hint, a a preview of coming attractions. And then Mark closes his account with these words. They all ate and were what? Satisfied. You know, the liberal scholarship would say, oh, well, they probably had a little bit. Uh, No, they were full. They were satisfied. No one went home hungry. And to make it, to put the cherry on top, to make sure we still understand exactly what happened, what does he say? Verse 43, 12 baskets full of leftovers. 12 baskets. I think that number is is significant. How many disciples were there? There were 12. Now Mark doesn't say each disciple had it. But they were the ones passing it out. Each disciple must have been standing there staring at this basket and scratching their head. You know, I'm not good at math, and maybe they weren't either, but they knew that five little loaves and two fish didn't equal 12 baskets of leftovers and a bunch of full people. 5,000 men. If you know that, remember I said each gospel has an account of this miracle. In Matthew 14:21, it says, those who ate were about 5,000 men besides women and children. And how did they know how many there were? Remember, they sat them down in groups of 50 and 100. They counted. Now, how many people total were there? We don't know. But Matthew is quick to point out it's not just men. When when Mark says 5,000 men, he means 5,000 men plus women and children. There there could have been three times this many people being fed. There could have been 15,000, 20,000 people. We don't really know. But they were all full. They were all satisfied. The scriptures want to make it in no no uncertain way us to know that Jesus did a miracle in feeding these 5,000 plus people. This was a sea of humanity that Jesus fed, both with the word of God and with the bread and the fishes. And that brings us to our last point. We won't spend a lot of time on it. And that is the prophet like Moses. 
that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. That whole scene, you know, if you know your Old Testament, if you know the book of, of Exodus, um, I think it brings to mind the way that God fed the Israelites in the wilderness, doesn't it? What did, what did he feed them with for 40 years? I've already mentioned the manna, the bread from heaven. The bread from heaven. 40 years, Exodus 16.35 says, God fed them that way. Jesus here is shown to be the one greater than Moses who fed the people in the wilderness, the desolate place, just like Moses did. And he's that prophet like Moses who was promised and prophesied back in Deuteronomy 18.15. This is one of those verses in your Old Testament that, I don't know if you highlight or mark up your Bible, but this one should jump off the page at you. It's, It's one of the most significant Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15.18, Moses says there, The Lord your God, this is right before Moses is going to die. It's not long until Moses dies after this. He says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. The Lord is going to raise up for you. A prophet like me. A prophet like Moses. And who do you think that people thought that was the first time around? Oh, it must be it must be Joshua. Was it Joshua? Yes and no. Was he a prophet like Moses? Yeah, he was a prophet like Moses. Was he the prophet like Moses? No. And Joshua is Hebrew for what name? It's a hint. Jesus. Right? This, this is what this miraculous sign is meant to convey. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the prophet like Moses who God raised up from among them. And that crowd, at least in some small way, understood this to be the point. If you look at John's parallel account, John 6.14, it says this. When the people saw the sign, John calls them signs, miraculous signs. Not just a, not just a powerful work. They had meaning behind these miracles. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Your bells should be going off. They're they're referring to Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet who was to come. Not a prophet. The prophet who is to come. There was one prophet of all prophets, the, the, the ultimate prophet who was foretold by Moses. And they're saying, I think this is him. And they weren't wrong. Their application of it may have been wrong, but they weren't wrong. Moses was the deliverer of the people of Israel from slavery. The Lord used Moses to deliver them. What else did Moses do? He delivered them. He taught them God's law. He led them where they were to go. He fed them in the wilderness. God used Moses to do all those things. Here we see that Jesus himself was the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. Those things Moses did were to point forward to the one who was to come. Jesus was one greater than Moses. His his doings and teachings and his deliverance is even greater than the one that Moses did in the book of Exodus. The feeding of the 5,000 is not just there for our amazement. It's not just there to astonish us. It's there to tell us who Jesus really is. It's there to tell us, just like it was to tell those people, that Jesus really is the Messiah, the prophet like Moses, and a compassionate Savior of sinners. The compassionate Savior of sinners. He is the true bread of life, which alone really satisfies and nourishes us to eternal life. 
If you have not yet come to Jesus Christ by faith, maybe you doubt his compassion, his, his love for the lost. I would say to you this morning, turn to him and live. Turn to him, take his yoke upon you, and have rest and live. Amen. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, uh, which we know that we, we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth, the mouth of the Lord. We thank you for the many ways that your scripture and Old and New Testament alike remind us over and over again of your compassion for your people, your compassion for those who fear you, your compassion and willingness to save anyone who comes to you by faith in Christ. And we ask that you would... Uh, we believe, as we always say, we believe, help our unbelief. We ask that if anyone is here even today that doesn't yet know you, that, that doubts your willingness to save, that doubts your compassion upon sinners, that you would impress it upon their hearts, that you really are exactly what your word says, you, that you reveal yourself to be in your word, that you are one that has compassion upon the lost, that you see these crowds in our text and have compassion upon them as their sheep without a shepherd, we thank you that you are the good shepherd who leaves the 99 and goes and seeks the one that is lost. Thank you for seeking each one here. And we ask that you would help us in our weakness, that we would have more and more the same compassion that Christ had for the lost multitudes around us here in Ramona, our neighbors, our family, our friends. Give us grace to have compassion upon them and to meet the needs that we can, but even more importantly, to teach them the word of Christ as Christ taught those crowns out of compassion. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.